Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host. And once again, I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Listeners of the Business Creators Radio Show know that we are a from-the-field podcast. Many of our episodes are filmed from my sumptuous balcony in Las Vegas. Today, it's a little chilly, so I'm at a remote location. You may hear a slight amount of ambient noise in the background, just as when I'm on my balcony. You may hear birds chirping, the occasional leaf blower, a car driving by in the background. And the reason I do it this way is because I want to meet you as the listener where you are. You may be out running, jogging, doing your thing, streaming this in the background while you're doing something else. You tune in to lots of other podcasts that are so formulaic, so programmed, so official sounding, and I want to set you free to know that your brilliance and your passion often manifest themselves when you are in places and spaces going about your daily life. As you listen to what's going to be transpiring today, picture yourself being that third person sitting in on a private mastermind conversation where two brilliant minds share ideas, bounce ideas off each other, and have that thing going on as one the other is speaking. And we're just going to kick back and have ourselves a good time. Get your pad of paper and two pens so that you can capture those aha moments that will move you forward and give you the slight edge as you achieve your business success and serve your community market and audience. Today, we're going to discuss the danger of success. And yes, success is a dangerous thing because all change is scary. And how to eradicate complacency before it begins. And we have somebody with us today who you are going to absolutely love. I've been looking forward to speaking with him for a while. In fact, it's so fortuitous. We were able to book this very busy man to spend some time with us. His name is Len Hurstein. I'll tell you briefly about him and then he'll tell you his story. He has over 30 years experience in business and brand marketing. Uh, He currently owns a marketing and events company called Manage Camp Incorporated. And he's managed innovated and grown brands for some major consumer packaged good marketers, including some names you've heard, Campbell Soup Company, Coca-Cola, Nabisco. Now, for the past several years, since 2015, he's also served as a reserve deputy sheriff with the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Colorado. His website is lenherstein, L-E-N-H-E-R-S-T-E-I-N.com. I encourage you to visit that. We'll talk more about that at the end. But for now, Len Hurstein, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, Adam. Hey, thanks for having me, buddy. Heck yeah. So what I'd like to do here is I just read off your official bio. And candidly, it's so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence. And we're on my my show. So what we like to do before we dive in, and I'm really curious about what you have to share today. Tell us a bit in your own words about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Wow, that's a lot to live up to. Um, (laughs) You know, it it has been a uh, it has been a long and windy path. I mean, I I, uh, I started out in consulting. I used to work for a company called Anderson Consulting, which people would now know as Accenture. Yep. Um, and back then, I was programming. I was programming in a language called COBOL two, um, and I hated it. I was terrible at it. And so I made I made a move over to uh, what we called change management. But it didn't take me long to figure out that that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in, in marketing and more specifically uh, traditional brand marketing. And so I went back, got my MBA and went to work for those companies that you mentioned. Um, and throughout time, I was working on innovation. I was working on base business, uh, domestic, international. And I was kind of going through the motions there. And, and finally, uh, I started realizing that I had this kind of entrepreneurial bent to myself that that I kind of picked up during the dot com era. I, I, I didn't know I had it. I didn't know I had it till till I started doing it, and then I realized that I really um, had this kind of fire burning within me that I that I wasn't aware of. And so, 
I was kind of looking for that idea, the thing that I wanted to do um, on my own. And, and that's when I kind of came up with this uh, event management. Basically, I was going to a lot of conferences that, um, yeah, they sucked. I, I didn't I didn't enjoy going to these conferences, but I went every year uh, and and everybody else did too. And I thought the bar was pretty low. So I started my own marketing conference. It was called Brand Manage Camp. Uh, we just did our uh, 19th annual this year in, uh, well, last year, 2021. And it's a two-day uh, conference aimed towards senior-level brand marketers to help them better connect with their consumers and customers and become better better marketers, build more profitable brands. Um, and then I started looking for something else to do in my life. So after a lot of years of doing that, I came. Uh, I wanted to volunteer and be part of my community more, and that's when I became a volunteer uh, reserve sheriff's deputy. Um, and that's kind of opened my eyes up to a whole new world. That 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 I hadn't been part of before, and and that's that's where I came up with the idea of this book that I, that I've written. It's called "Be Vigilant: Strategies to Stop Complacency, Improve Performance, Safeguard Success." We talk a lot about how complacency kills in law enforcement, and I started thinking, you know what? Complacency kills businesses, it kills brands, it kills organizations, and it kills personal relationships. And so that that's what I've kind of been dedicating myself to recently is this this kind of understanding what complacency is, why it's so dangerous, um, and what we can learn from those who deal with it every day in terms of how do we identify complacency in our own lives, both work and, and personal, and how do we fight it with vigilance? Well, let me tell you a few things. First of all, you're absolutely right. A lot of conferences suck. I mean, I've been to a fair amount of them. There are a few that stand out as being really, really, really good. But when you th- when somebody says seminar to me, what I often see is an overloaded schedule with way too much packed in. You go way over time, which then touches one of the things that I share in my teachings, which is always be on time. Because when you ask somebody for 60 minutes of their time, when you get to minute 61, all you hear is the teacher from Peanuts. So you, yeah. go, to these, you go to these conferences and you expect they're going to have an offer for you. And why wouldn't they? Because they've shown you some brilliance and passion. And they're giving you an opportunity to get more of that if it's something you want. But if they rambled on for 59 minutes and 32 seconds uh, because they didn't control their PowerPoint deck and didn't have fail safes built in there to manage your time, and now you're expected to sit there for 15 minutes while they go through their value stack, are you going to buy from them? No, no. It's funny you mentioned that because there, there was a list of things back in 2002 that I wrote down on a flight from New Orleans to Philadelphia and to age myself, it was on a U.S. air flight. And I started writing down the things that my next conference uh, that I was going to go to had to have, and I couldn't find it. And that became kind of like the rallying point for what my conference was going to be. One of the things is being on time. And we are known as one of the, as, as the most on-time marketing conference in the world. I am a stickler. Any speaker who has ever spoken at my event knows this as a fact that um, they they know very well that they are not to go over time. Um, and they're also not to go under time. Under time messes things up too. It, 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 people don't realize it, but when you're running a, a, a tight ship and someone ends up 10, 15 minutes under time, uh, you know, food isn't ready when it's supposed to be ready. Uh, every, you know, the next speaker is not ready. So um, we, are, we are one of the most on-time events you'll ever go to. I was speaking at Jim Palmer's Dream Business Academy once and... Um, he didn't uh, have a clock up for some reason. I think uh, it was just a minor oversight or what have you. So I didn't know until I started getting people looking up their watches that I was on the cusp of going over. So yeah. what I did in that case is I said, is I said, folks, I'll understand if the answer is no. And I'll understand if you say yes and Jim overrides me. But could I please have five more minutes of your time? Because there's this little clip I want to show you that is going to totally bring together everything for you and show you something that you can take into your life that will help you relate to your prospects better and turn more of them into customers. And I got a yes from everybody in the room. Now, I actually felt bad doing that because I felt like in a way I'd sort of failed. I'd failed to manage my own presentation as much as I needed to. But let me tell you something about Jim. And uh, he actually has a line in his business where he works with people to design their virtual and physical events. Yep. Jim, when he runs his Dream Business Academies, has a book that he uses to manage the event where he has things timed down to the minute. 
So this thing happens at 8 o'clock. This happens at 8.07. This happens at 8.21. The video he's going to show then goes for exactly 12 minutes. You get the idea of how precise this is. Yep. But what he also does is he builds in fail-safes. So if things get a little off-center, he has certain things that he teaches himself outside of his guest speakers where he can cover it in 10 minutes or he can cover it in 40 minutes, depending on whether he needs to gain or lose time. Yep. So no matter what, lunch is always on time, and it always ends on time at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that's that's the sign of a good event planner, right? Yeah. We do, we do the same thing. We've got contingency plans in place. We've got people monitoring. We know our speakers' presentations so that when we can already know 20 minutes ahead of time, whether they're running early or late, um, and we can give uh, the next the next things that are going on the right amount of attention that they need to get. So those those are what you want to see. But sadly, most events don't do that. Well, after that happened to me, I put in a new requirement for when I give speeches is and, and I'll provide this myself. Um, I have that I'll carry with me a large digital clock and that clock needs to be placed somewhere where I can see it from the stage. Yeah. So if they have their own digital clock, that's awesome. But I'm not going to rely on the people holding up the signs to say 10, 5, because they can yeah. get they can get off base as well. And I might not see that. But however, Absolutely. a digital clock that's ticking where the, the background is black and the letters are red, I will see that. Yep. So yeah, then sure. that point that point I know, okay, wait a minute, I'm 40 minutes into this and I've actually covered 20 minutes of material. So now I need to implement my fail safes to get me back in alignment. And that's just part of being a good speaker. And I love that. You recognize all this, and I think it's great. When I was in MBA school at Duquesne University, one of my instructors for a course called Environment of Business, uh, his name was Thomas Murren. He was on the board of directors for many companies, including U.S. Steel. Or I don't know, it was, I think it might have been U.S. Steel, but I know he was definitely on the board of directors for Westinghouse, which is a very well-known name when it comes to modern business. Mm-hmm. He was also a, dep- a deputy secretary of commerce at the federal level. So this is somebody who not only had an understanding of the environment of business, he had helped shape it. This is the type of adjunct instructor you want to have when you walk into that classroom in an MBA program. He divided the class into groups of seven or eight. And at the beginning of every class, one group each week did a 20-minute presentation. Now, when Mr. Murren said 20 minutes, he did not mean 19 minutes. He did not mean 21 minutes. He meant 20 minutes. And yeah. if you were not at the 20-minute mark, the, your grade got hit. Now, when my group went up, we did a presentation on board governance. I'm thinking, oh, this is a guy who has rocked boards of directors. All we have to do is dial into him. He loved my explanation of the difference between board, B-O-A-R-D, governments, versus board, B-O-R-E-D, governance. But he gave our, but he gave our group a B plus. Want to guess why? You uh, didn't make the time. 27 minutes. Yeah. I was furious. I even spoke with the dean because I was ready to like officially protest this, especially when he told the entire class our grade. But then I thought about it and I realized he's actually teaching us something that's extremely important to the environment of business is that folks are extremely busy. And with the ongoing trends of expecting more from less people, they have finite amounts of time. And if you want to take them away from all their deadlines and projects and have them sit in yet another meeting that they're being included in, in the name of inclusiveness, even though there's no point to them being there. And you say it's a 30 minute meeting, it better be a 30 minute meeting because otherwise you will get those people staring at watches, fumbling with their smartphones. And anything you say after a minute 30 and one second is going to be the teacher and peanuts. Yeah, well, and I mean, this is this is a lesson for for that goes beyond even speaking and presentations and, and things of that sort. I mean, the quickest way to turn off a customer or a client is to uh, not meet expectations, right? So if you set expectations and then you don't meet them without any reason why or without any warning or anything like that, that is one of the quickest ways to turn off a customer or potential customer or client. Now, in a, in a meeting setting, you know, we're talking about time. We're talking about their expectation is 20 minutes and you go to 27 minutes. Now you've, you've created a sense of discomfort for them. You've maybe thrown off their own schedules. You've done things that show maybe a lack of respect to them. But it's the same thing as it relates to anything in, in business or in life. Expectations uh, that are built and unmet 
are a great way to, to lose trust and to lose favor. As we also share in a book, in my book, uh, which is called Groundhog Days, an event, not a business strategy. Uh, there's a story of a web developer who discovered that affluent clients are actually some of the easiest to work with. Your affluent client is going to be the type who already knows what you do, and they already have expectations of the value you will provide for them. You don't need to wow them. They're not going to be the blind person. and You're going to be the one-eyed person leading them through the wilderness. And chances are that before they even get on the telephone with you or the Zoom call with you to have the initial conversation, they know as much about you as you know about yourself. So with them, generally speaking, what you need to do is deliver what you said you were going to deliver when you said you were going to deliver it, communicate anything along the lines, and occasionally throw in a few surprises. And they will be some of the easiest clients to work with. Yeah. And the interesting thing about all this, even, you know, going back to the conferences and, and the presentations and all that, this really ties in nicely with, with everything as it relates to complacency and vigilance that I talk about now, because the people that are, and and the businesses and the people that are are most likely to go over in time, to not meet expectations, to get lazy with things like that, are the ones who have been successful, who view themselves as successful, get comfortable, they get overconfident. You're not going to find a lot of bootstrapping startups who get 10 minutes with a, you know, angel investor who are going to go way over in time. They're going to go in and they're going to nail it because they are vigilant. But those who have that sense of superiority, that sense of confidence or overconfidence, that's where the danger comes in. Exactly. Exactly. So, so let's dive in here a little bit. And this is a great segue. So, uh First of all, let's just define the title of what we're discussing here, the uh, danger of success and uh, and how complacency can come into the whole thing. So tell us about that. What is the danger of success? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I, that, that we need to do is just kind of like define complacency, because I think a lot yes. of people are confused by what that is. I think a lot of people equate complacency with laziness. And we use that kind of in the vernacular sometimes in the way that we describe it. But but the reality is that complacency is not laziness. Like I said, complacency is uh, when overconfidence, when self-satisfaction, when a smugness creates an unawareness of actual or potential threats, right? And that's where we become, that's why success becomes dangerous, right? And so there's this thing that you know is called survivorship bias. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those memes. I'm older than you. So I don't know if this meme is going to resonate with you, but, you know, I survive, you know, see a meme that says, you know, I survived spankings and lead paint and riding around with no (laughs) seatbelts and smoking cigarettes and, and all these things, you know, like if you did too. Well, the reality is that if you didn't survive, you're not around the like, right? So the only people left to like are those who survived which creates a survivorship bias, right? It creates that overconfidence that whatever I did led me to where I am now. And so that worked. And that's that's a problem that we have in business. It's a problem we have in life with our personal relationships. And it's why success, if not looked at properly, can put us in a situation where it's actually a danger to us. You know, I ran into this very early in my brief corporate career. And I would hear a phrase a lot, and this came up so often. It said, "Well, this is how we've always done it." Oh, now, <laughs> now, there, now, there's a reason why I was branded unemployable is because I had an answer to that, and it was very simple. I would say, "Yeah," and despite that, we're still here. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what? I mean, what? I mean, what does that mean? We've always done it this way, so that means it's a good thing. Well, if it's so good, why are we arguing over it now? Yeah, no, for sure, it's it's. That is the epitome of complacency. And one of the, one of the things I, you know, I always say is it, you need to, one of the things I talk about in a book is the need to articulate your why. It's something that we talk a lot about in law enforcement. And it's, and it's you know, you have to be able to understand the why behind everything that you're doing. And, you know, in a business perspective, it means being able to understand the purpose of your organization and even your purpose personally, right? But when the why, when the answer to the why is either, because we've always done it this way, or because I said so, you're in danger. Yeah, very, very, 
much so. And then you hear, do as I say, not as I do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, on, and so on and so forth. Uh, I've also, through a combination of my own personal experience during my five years as a corporate hustler before I became a full-blown entrepreneur, and also in just in so many stories I hear that... I hear this over and over again from the people who made the jump into entrepreneurship from the corporate setting is they would say that for so long, for so long, they would argue for change and they would be energetic. They would be innovative and time and time again, they would hit roadblocks and some of the roadblocks would take the form of, well, you're just this on the org chart. So who are you to say anything? So-and-so is higher than you, which means if there's ever a question, they're right and you're wrong. So these people would get to the point where they would, and I've heard this thing at least three times, and I did it myself. You get to a point where you access a copy of your job description, and you print it out, and you keep it in your desk drawer. It begins to get wrinkled and has dog ears and coffee stains on it. When somebody gets to that point... That means that they are regularly checking to see if what they're doing is within the job description or not. And if it's not there, they know they don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. It's, that's, it's, com- that's complacency. And these are the people and these are the people who their next step is to start looking outward. Yeah, for sure. And, and what happens is complacency can be driven top down or bottom up. Um, and, and it happens the both ways. And one of the things, so one of the chapters in the book is this idea around how to fight complacency through giving your employees autonomy and discretion, right? Because without autonomy and discretion, what you're doing is you're turning off their awareness because you're not, you're not giving them any reason to be aware of what's going on. One of the, one of the examples I would give is, you know, you go to a, you know, a warehouse store, you go to a a home improvement store, right? And you're walking down the aisle and there's a guy there or a woman there whose job is to restock. Now, if their job has been made clear to them that their job is to restock, how likely, and and they're, they're incentivized on that and they're rewarded on that and they're judged by how well they restock, how long it takes them, how accurate they are, all those things. How likely are they to spend time helping you when you need help finding something in that aisle, right? That's not their job. They're, they're, they're not going to benefit from that in any way, shape, or form. By taking away that autonomy, by taking away their discretion and how they do their job and how they view their job and understanding the purpose of their job, whether it's you know customer satisfaction or just stocking shelves, those things lead to that bottom-up complacency right? That, that complacency that people at the top levels may never see or understand because it's happening at a level that doesn't get reported, that doesn't get seen, that doesn't do anything other than create this underlying negative effect on the bottom line. Another story from my book, and this happened to me. I was at a conference uh, being hosted by my clients once. And well, actually, that's happened a lot of times, but there's this one particular situation. And I had a headache, so I wanted to take my leave, and I wanted a nice, crisp, cold glass of iced tea to wash that down. So what did I do? I The front desk was right outside, so I went outside, and I went to the front desk, and I asked them if I, they had any iced tea, and they said, sure, we'll bring that to you. Went back in the room. They sent people in to replace the, replace the water cooler, to clean up plates, a bunch of other things, adjust the temperature. Nobody came with my iced tea. Right. So I went back to the desk at, uh, at, at the break, and I asked them about that, and they said, oh, uh, well, and I'll, I'll speed this up a little bit. You had the people at the front desk and ultimately their supervisor calling the kitchen to ask about the glass of iced tea. The kitchen was so close, I could hear the phone ringing in there. So you mean to tell me that there were five people at that desk, the four people who were stationed there, and then their supervisor? And nobody could have got me a glass of iced tea if everybody in the kitchen was busy or on break. Yeah, well, none of none of them felt like it was within their, you know, their job or or within their purview to go do that. Right? They yeah, were probably afraid they would get in trouble for leaving the desk. Actually, you've already ruled the strike that I was setting up. Um, now, was I a big baby because I had this expectation they bring me iced tea? No, because they said they would. If they weren't going to bring me iced tea, they could have just said that they weren't going to do it or they didn't have it available. 
Right. So it wasn't a matter of me being, um, you know, a, a Chad or a Karen or a prima donna or anything like that. I mean, what was I supposed to do? Not take yes for an answer? Yeah, it, 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 you're absolutely right. And that's, that's, that's an experience that all too often we have at a lot of different organizations. And the reality is you're telling me this story now, but the reality is that the senior management at that hotel probably never knew about it, right? Because they probably never knew about it because there was no upward reporting. There was fear and upward reporting. And I can see a situation where maybe one of those people at the front desk at one time had stepped away from the front desk to help a customer or somebody checking in or, or a guest or whatever and gone above and beyond and been told, don't you ever walk away from your station again. Uh, you're the front desk and don't be going around stepping on other people's toes trying to show off. And next time you screw up like this, there'll be real consequences. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, this is a real thing, right? And, and that's, that's, that's part of why complacency is so insidious because you don't see it, right? Unless you are actively looking for it and actively fighting it with vigilance, you don't see it. And so you don't even understand that it's happening until it's too late, right? Until those negative experiences take place. And until those negative experiences have a cumulative effect that is big enough that you start understanding it by then, it's a little, it's a little late, right? It's a little late. And that, and that's kind of what the whole book is about. The whole book is how do you make sure you don't get to that point? How do you make sure that you are actively looking for identifying and fighting it? And and I want to make an important distinction here because sometimes, you know, some people misidentify what complacency is and also people misidentify what the opposite of complacency is. A lot of times people start hearing about this and they get a little nervous. They're like, well, what's the, what's the, you know, what's the alternative to be paranoid all the time, to walk around paranoid? And and what I tell people is that the opposite of complacency is not paranoia, it's vigilance. And the difference is this, paranoia is based in fear and vigilance is based in awareness. And this is, that's what this is all about. This is all about creating environments at work and at home that allow you to maintain that awareness and understand how to, you know, identify issues before they become issues and fight them. Yeah, well, I just had an epiphany. And and I love epiphanies. And and this did not make it into my book because I thought of it just now based on something you said. That's what I mean. These are these truly are mastermind conversations. And here goes. I am wondering if there were two different values that were in conflict that created the entire situation. And one of the values could have been, as we've already discussed, that you have an assigned role on your org chart. You stand behind the front desk and check people in. And if you go out of your way, then you're breaking the rules and you're, and they can make a long list of existential threats to the entire organization that stepping away from the front desk for 10 seconds could cause. I mean, you'd be amazed the amount of time. I mean, you might not be actually, but some might be amazed at how far people in authority with titles will go to create ridiculous scenarios of how somebody going to get me an iced tea could have resulted in their hotel going out of business. Right. Yeah. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we have that one. And then there's another thing and you see this a lot in the, um, you see this a lot in the travel and particularly the hotel industries where they tell you never say no to a customer. So I asked for iced tea, what are they going to do? Say no, even if they don't have it. So they're, so they know never say no. Okay. It'd have been easier if they had, if they'd have said, well, we don't have iced tea in the kitchen or we're not able to do that. Then I said, cool, where can I get some iced tea? That would have been it. Yeah. Do you have a vending machine? Is there a place across the street? Uh, you know, what are my options? That, that would have been, that would have been the entire conversation. And, uh, I wouldn't have had a problem with that. Just tell me you can't do it and I'll go somewhere else. No big deal. Cause my bottom line was getting the iced tea. It was not who gives it, for, it was not who gets it for me or where do I get it from? Well, and, and this is where it all plays together, right? So so a lot of these these concepts that we've been talking about play together. So on one end, you have the autonomy and the discretion that you give your employees to do things um, that may not necessarily be in their exact job description, but you also have to give them the tools to make the right choices as to how they use that autonomy and discretion. And that's where we get into uh, being able to articulate the why. And that's why it's so, so important for everybody in your organization to understand the true purpose of why they're there, of why this organization exists, why this business exists, beyond just making money, what is our 
purpose. And if you understand your purpose, and that purpose is understood across every job title and across the entire organization, then people can make decisions that are based in furthering that purpose, right? And so when you have things that may be, you know, on the surface at odds with each other, you should be able to answer which way to go by going back to the purpose, right? You know, yeah. Someone, someone who is great at this, the, the late Tony Shea and Zappos, right? Yes. You know, you're you're a, a Vegas, you're in Vegas, whatever you understand. Yep. Zappos is a big presence there, right? Um, you know, the the story that that I heard, you know, from uh, a speaker that we had once had a brain managed camp who was, you know, very close with Tony um, was this, you know, story about them ordering a pizza. Have you heard this? Uh, it's going to tie into my story of Zappos, but please tell it. Okay. Very quickly, very quickly. Tony and some people early on in Zappos were at a hotel in San Francisco and it was late at night. Um, they were partying a little bit and they were hungry and they were looking for a pizza, but every place that they looked at was closed. And so Tony said, go ahead, uh, call Zappos. Now for anybody who doesn't know Zappos, Zappos is an online, uh, you know, e-commerce, uh, shoe retailer, right? Sell shoes for the most part. That's how they started. So calls up Zappos. The person answers the phone, explains to them that, um, you know, they would like, they're looking for a pizza. Now think about your organization and whether someone called up your organization and asked for a pizza, what your customer service representative would do. Um, if they're like most organizations, they are trained to keep those calls as short as possible um, and to uh, get, get through them as many as they can so that they don't keep people holding and they get through their, their call queue. And they probably would have said, we don't do pizza. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, that's not what happened here. Zappos, uh, customer service rep said, hold on a second. Let me look for you. Found a place that was open, um, and actually helped them put in an order for a pizza. No conversation at any point in time about buying shoes, ended the call. And Tony was through the roof happy, right? Because this is what they had taught their people. They had taught their people to make their customers or potential customers happy in any way that they possibly can. That's legal, of course, but this is what they knew their purpose was. And it didn't matter how long they were on the phone for. They weren't timed. It didn't matter anything. All that mattered is that they tried to satisfy their customer in the way that their customer needed to be satisfied at that point in time. That is understanding your purpose and having the autonomy and discretion to do what you do within whatever your job title is to reach that purpose. Okay. So my Zappos story actually kind of dovetails right along with what you just said. Now, this goes back many, many, many years ago. And I was trying to um, impress a female interest by knowing the style of the shoes she was wearing. Okay. And I didn't know the name of it. So I got a picture of her wearing them and I called Zappos and asked, what is this style? And they had me send me a picture of it. And then they said, oh yeah, that's, that's this. And they even went so far as to explain the history of it and everything. I was like, oh, really cool. Thanks. All right. right. So that was helpful to me. And then I heard the story you just said. So a couple of weeks later, just for fun, I called Zappos and ordered a pizza and they sent me one. Yeah. Yeah. And did they ask you to buy anything? No, they didn't. Right. But what they, but what they were investing in was you and I sitting here 20 years later saying how awesome they are. Hey, if they'll send you a pizza, you think they might do a good job with your shoes? Yeah. And and this is and and the point is for anybody listening out there that has you know customer service agents or people that are you know doing it, the, the point is not to teach your people to order pizzas. Obviously, right. the point is to say let you need to understand what success looks like and what the purpose is, and then you know another chapter of the book is about metrics and measurements. You know that plays into this as well because one of the ways that you're going to show people how committed you are to the purpose that you've created is how you measure their success. Right. If you tell your customer service agent that success is them making the customer happy, but then you tie their incentive to how short they keep their phone calls, that's not telling the same story, right? That's not that yeah. that metric is not furthering that purpose. And so everything has to line up. But the real question is, what do you want your people to do? What does success look like for your organization? You know, a lot of people have mission statements and vision statements. What you need is a purpose statement, a simple easy to understand purpose statement that sets the direction for your company and allows people to make informed decisions with the autonomy that you give them. 
Well, here's something I ran into. I, I briefly had a job as a um, recruiter for a temp agency. And our job performance was based upon them tracking how many hours we spent on outgoing phone calls. But okay. at the same time, and I'm not going to belabor this conversation because you still have a few things to share with us, is they would, it seemed like they were almost on a mission to cut us off from finding the leads to call that would be valuable leads to call. But then I figured out pretty quickly that people were getting praised for large amounts of outgoing phone time. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I had my buddies uh, call me from different phone numbers. And then I say, hey, I call you right back. And I'd call them right back and have prolonged conversations with them. And yeah. since it wasn't the same phone number every single time, it flew under their radar that I was just calling my buddies back from different places they were calling me, like whether it was their home phone, their cell phone, a third person's place, a pay phone in some cases, their work phone. I, I mean, whatever it was, I just, uh, and then I, then, then I expanded that network to include, cause I'd recently graduated from college. So I was still in touch with all the people from college. I expanded it to include them as well. Yeah. And then that's, that's one of the dangers of Ooh, where, where metrics a, can go wrong. Right. And I was a star. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was, a yeah, I was, um, I was supposed to be filling, uh, positions for people to go, uh, put CDs in boxes. Yep. And I was talking to a guy who was a third year consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers about women. There you go. Well, this what is, was that, what was that doing for the organization? Yeah, you know, you know what? So I, I have a I have a whole chapter on this in the book about metrics and things of that sort. What this is called is the cobra effect. Have you ever heard that term before? Tell us about it. So back in colonial India, right, they had a problem with cobras. And so what they did is they put a bounty on the heads of cobras, right? So if you know when you caught and killed a cobra, you would get a reward. Well, what happened? The enterprising people of of you know. New Delhi or Delhi or, you know, they started breeding cobras, right? They would breed cobras yep. and then they would kill them and then they would collect the rewards. Well, what happened was eventually, you know, the government got, you know, to understand this and they eliminated the whole thing. And now they had all these cobras that have been bred. They got released because they were no longer worth anything. So they ended up with a worse problem to begin with um, because they created a metric that was gameable, right? They were able to game it and be successful, which is what you did. You had a, you, you had a metric that you were able to game for success, right? Yeah. Um, and what it does is that breeds complacency because what happens is for a while, the metrics are showing positive results, right? Man, call volume is up. The, the amount of time these guys are spending on calls is way up. You know, these are things that get people excited. These are things that we're trying to accomplish. And then you realize that you've been measuring the wrong things or you've been measuring the right things and you've been allowing them to be gamed or whatever it is. And those metrics have been hiding the issues that actually exist. They have made you overconfident, right? And they've made you complacent because you're working with the wrong information. I was waiting for them to come to me with a list of the numbers I was calling and ask who those people were. They never did. Yeah, I was hoping they would. So I can say, yeah, that's exactly what I did because this is what you seem to be concerned about. Now, let me tell you about my concerns, which you have dismissed and shot down about how I know that there are places I can go to find openings for temp positions and people who are ready to fill those temp positions is then they could be at work at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, but you won't let me go near those sources because, well, we've never done that before and we've always done it this other way. Right. Yeah. This was a yeah. company in the year 2000 for a company that had 20 employees had one computer and it was on a dial-up connection. <laughs> so already in 2000, uh, there were job boards online where you could contact these companies and say, hey, you know what? Um, I know you're looking for this type of employee. Um, I have somebody I could send there and you could get them started tomorrow on a temp basis and try them out. Uh, If you like them, you can hire them. You can do a temp to hire. Or in the meantime, while you continue your search to fill this gap in your organizational structure, you have somebody there performing caretaker responsibilities that'll at least have you less behind. What do you say? That could have been a placement. Uh, You also had job boards of people who were unemployed 
because the specification for locating somebody to be placed in temp is they specifically had to be unemployed because people who already had part-time jobs or already had jobs were not going to go put CDs in boxes uh, or, or, be a, or be a stand-in comptroller or whatever it was or do programming for this one rollout of a new software that they only needed people for two weeks for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But meanwhile, I knew where those people were hanging out. And if I had been able to access them, I probably could have filled my database with applicants and any job that came in, I probably could have filled. But, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how we do things. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of red flags as to what was creating that complacency, right? And, and uh-huh. a lot of ways that could have been could have been fixed. And that that's really what this is all about, right? I mean, it's one thing to point it out and to talk about what complacency is and why it's so dangerous. But really what we all want is, is you know, the tools to fix it, right? The tools to to be able to identify and fight it. And that's 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 really, you know, what you know, what I've been dedicating myself to is helping people understand how do you root this out, right? Because because I guarantee you, people are sitting there, you know, if you think to yourself right now about your own business, about your own life, there's, you're almost guaranteed to find places that you're going to identify that you're being complacent in immediately. Um, and then there's going to be other places that you're still too overconfident to even see it, right? And so that's why this stuff has to be kind of institutionalized. It has to be there has to be process involved to help you do this on, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you know, in law enforcement, you know, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that we do over and over and over again, that, that is dangerous to us is traffic stops. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, after, after a thousand traffic stops where nothing goes wrong, you might start letting your guard down. Right. And that's, 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 you know, even for us who know, who see the videos, we know all the things that can go wrong. We still can fall into that. And so that's why you have to build in a process that fights that. And it's the same thing, you know, for me, I might, you know, touch the car on the way up and that helps me get in the right mindset, or I might switch which side I go to the driver's side or the passenger side to keep it unpredictable, but also make sure that I'm staying aware and staying engaged and and understanding what's going on. Um, and that's what we need in our business lives and our personal lives. We need tools that help us stay engaged because it's so easy to check out. There's so much stuff going on. And the last place that we want to spend our time is the places that were already successful. Yeah, well, traffic stops can be a real thing. Now, it may shock you to know that I've been pulled over a couple of times in my life. I believe it. I believe it, Adam. <laughs> I'm, generally, I'm, ge- I'm generally a law-abiding citizen, but every so often. Now, there was this one time I was uh, driving down Tanea Way here in Las Vegas, and it was in the evening time. It was right near where they have all the hospitals and such. And uh-huh. uh, I knew that I had probably been doing about 15 to 35. And I saw, okay, so there's a police officer. He's right behind me. All right, I know I'm getting pulled over here. Yep. So I keep driving and driving and driving, and he keeps following and following and following. It's like, dude, just light me up already. You got me. <laughs> but I also recognized that uh, they needed to observe my driving patterns for a while. And it was part of their job. Now, imagine, and uh, and that was actually not a bad interaction. In fact, uh, he didn't even give me a warning. He just said, be careful next time. Uh, part of that's because I'm just a, a generally cooperative person on something minor like a traffic stop. There's no reason to go DEFCON 5 on that. In fact, uh, in fact, I'm not going to ask you to comment unless you want to, but it's been my experience that for minor things like that, if you're if you're catching an officer who's actually looking for some to give somebody a break because they're in a good mood, be that person. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, you know, uh, everybody's different, right? And And so... You know, I'm, I I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell you know myself in general. I don't enjoy writing tickets. I don't uh, yeah. you know. For me, it's about making sure people are safe, making sure um, you know that that there's not anything bigger going on, and getting people on their way. And so you know, a lot of times for me, you know, those traffic stops are an opportunity to educate, to you know, make people aware of what's going on, and you know, and, and also uh, make sure there's nothing nothing bigger going on. But like you said, I mean, it, nothing ever comes from escalating these things beyond where they need to go, um, you know, and on both sides, on both right. sides, right? There's no read, you know, there's no reason for someone to come in hot as a, as a law enforcement officer. There's no reason for people to be automatically upset that they've gotten pulled over. And, there, and the reality is that, 
you know, the, the reason why it could have taken him a long time to pull you over is, is there's a number of reasons, right? Yeah. It could have been that he wanted to make sure that, that you weren't drunk. Right. And he that, wanted that, to, that was, that was my immediate thought. So he right? wanted to observe me go a couple blocks and stay within the line. So he knew yeah. it probably wasn't a DUI type thing. Or he could have just been looking for a safer place to pull you over for you and for him. That could um, be the, that could be the case right? too, because I've seen, I've seen stops done and I'm thinking, why the hell did they stop them there? It's like they went out of their way to make it unsafe for everybody involved. They could have gone one more block down. It wouldn't have changed anything. Yeah. And some, sometimes that's out of our control. We do, sometimes yeah. we do as much as we possibly can. And we light people up right where they can pull into a driveway or something and they keep going or they pull over to the left or they do something that, that you weren't taught to do in, in driving school. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why, why those things can happen. And that's why, you know, here, here's, it's a good segue to actually one last thing that, that um, well, not one last thing, but another thing that I want to talk about, which is this idea of how much accountability and transparency plays into um, complacency. And the fact that a lot of times when organizations or people or government entities are not holding themselves accountable or not being transparent, it creates an environment that allows them to become complacent because they're not answering to anybody because they don't have to articulate their whys. Um, and you know, what happens is you have an erosion of trust and over time, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the erosion of trust in, in both government and in, in industry. Right. And what happens is when you lose trust, the first thing that you lose is the benefit of doubt. Right. Think yeah. about think about a personal relationship, whether it's a you know a partner or, or a spouse. If you get to the point where no matter what they say, you interpret that in the worst possible way, and you think that you know they they wake up and say good morning, and you're like, what do you mean by that? What are you trying to say? You know those types of things is is an erosion of trust, and when you have an erosion of trust, then it's very difficult to have a positive interaction. Right. And that's what, yeah. that's what, you know, it, it's, it's relevant to law enforcement. We've seen it happen in law enforcement that there's an erosion of trust. There's a, there's a lack of the benefit of doubt. There's a, you know, an assumption that everything is done for nefarious or bad reasons. Um, and that is the same in industry. It's the same in business. It's the same in personal lives. When you allow that trust to erode and you abuse um, the lack of accountability and a lack of transparency to create you know, instances where you're abusing power or you're doing things. And we, we abuse power all the time in business, right? Like, you know, why'd you take that price increase? Well, because we could, because they had to pay it. Right. That's, uh -huh. that's, that's not a good reason. That's an abusive power, right? And an abusive power leads to an erosion of trust and that's hard to get back. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. Now, the final point I was going to make about the traffic stop story is that, um, in that particular scenario, I felt like I was dealing with a situation where somebody was being diligent and careful, uh, whether it's because they wanted to make sure that when they did light me up, it was in the safest spot possible mm -hmm. or that they were checking to make sure that I wasn't showing signs of being drunk, which when you think about it makes their life easier because if I'm not showing signs, they probably don't have to do a sobriety check. They can probably just deal with a speeding infraction and send me on my way, however they choose to do so. Uh, but you know, that's, but think about what if they had just say, oh, wait, okay, 15 or 35, let's light them up right now. Then they're walking into all kinds of things where taking an extra 90 seconds could have left them without intelligence to handle that. Well, intelligently. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's a good lesson that, that translates to business and life, right? Slow yeah. things down, slow things down, gather a little bit more information, Right understand what you're getting into and the more information you can have the better decisions you can make off off the bat right and yeah. that's that's another piece of you know complacent when we become complacent when we become overconfident we tend to make snap decisions because we inherently have this overconfidence in the way that we process and the way that we think right and yeah. that that's where we can miss things you know when you, when you unnecessarily rush through the process because of overconfidence, because of a smugness or self-satisfaction, that's where you're going to miss the threats. Yeah. So um, this leads to uh, one thing that I know you shared that I would love to delve into a little bit. And I think it might be a good way of even summing up some of the points we made in uh, our almost an hour together here. So you've said that a key, to, a key part of being vigilant, since we're talking about vigilance here, is questioning everything, even the things that go right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so 
why and how is that important? And how would you go about briefing and debriefing your way to continue success using that philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. I, I talk about the importance of both briefing and debriefing. Um, and this is something that I picked up from law enforcement and other people have picked up from military and things of that sort. You know, what we're talking about here is specifically the debriefing side, this questioning everything. Um, and, you know, when I talk to people about in their business, whether they do or at home, whether they do debriefs, a lot of people will say yes. But the reality is they're only doing debriefs when something goes wrong. And most of the time, what that means is they're looking for the reason it went wrong. And even more specific, they're looking for who to blame, right? And so yep. this is this is why a lot of times debriefs turn into blame sessions, right? Yep. What we do in law enforcement is we debrief major incidents and we, def- we you know, we'll, we'll have a definition of what requires it and what doesn't. But for the most part, anything that that's kind of significant that happens, we will there's an understanding up front that we are going to debrief it regardless of whether the outcome was positive or negative. And it's even more important when the outcome is positive, right? Because what happens is when something goes well and you don't debrief it, what you're missing are those little micro failures. You're missing, did it go well? Did things turn out positive because of everything you did? Or did things turn out positive because you got lucky or because you're positive things outweighed your mistakes or because your competition dropped the ball and left the door open for you. There's a lot of reasons why things can can go well. If you don't debrief things that go well, you lose the opportunity to identify those micro failures in time, right? And that yeah. confidence that you get from that from that success makes you vulnerable. You know, I tell people, you know, if, if you're here, you know, if you're if you're from Denver, you talk about, you know, be a Peyton Manning. If you're from anywhere else, you say be a be a Tom Brady. Be that person who, regardless of how that game turns out, you're in that film room, right? And everybody knows that you're going to be going through what happened with them, which forces them to pay more attention, right? When they know they're going to have to talk about things afterwards, it forces them to stay aware. And it comes back to this whole idea of awareness and engagement. Right. So by having debriefs, and I talk about in the book, there are seven or eight specific things that I teach in terms of how do you actually make sure your debriefs are successful? Because there's a lot of ways debriefs can go wrong. If you don't leave titles at the door, if, you know, if the only people who feel comfortable talking are the most senior people in the room and everybody else is scared, that defeats the whole purpose, right? The the debrief should be not dependent on outcome and it should not be dependent on titles and experience. Everybody should have an equal say. And there's a lot of things that I talk about that go into making a successful debrief. But the real point is that you want to debrief things, whether they go right or wrong, not just when they go wrong. This makes me think of something here. Um, You and I are both in the marketing world. So we have email lists and we send out emails and such. And uh, have you ever seen it happen where an email goes out, a promotional email type, and it has a broken link in it? Oh yeah. That, okay. That, that, that's terrible. That there, me to no end. There are, there are different approaches you can take to that. And I've seen the gamut of it. One of which is the, what actually, as you say, turns into a blame session and a, oh my God, this is so awful for our reputation. Everybody's laughing at us now. What do we need to do internally to make sure this never happens again? And what that ultimately results in, in my experience is they become really reticent and gun shy about marketing at all. Because mm-hmm. now they have put in all these extra processes that kind of just take the fun out of the whole thing. Now, on the other hand, I have a client who's been with me for 16 years, and he uh, would send out his own email newsletter. He just liked having the ability to just punch in his stuff and hit send. So, mm-hmm. you know, my firm set up the templates, gave him the instructions, and he just did it. it. Took him five minutes. He enjoyed doing it, believe it or not. Well, he would send the newsletters every Monday. And the subject line would always start with his name. And you know how it is when you haven't cleared your cookies and cash and you type something in a, in a, in a field. And if you type the first letter, it remembers what was there before. Mm-hmm. Well, one time he sent it out and uh, his, his name starts with the letter D. So people who know me probably know who I'm talking about. And he forgot to auto-populate the rest of the subject line. So his newsletter went out and the subject line was a lowercase d. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you think he'd be freaking out over that, but he was saying, "Oh, my open rates went up seven percent, and I ended up getting two new clients." Wow! Because the pa- because the pattern interrupt caused people to open this up, if for no other reason to see 
was this an intentional typo? Was there a reason he wanted us to open this one? And it also because they were so used to seeing his regular subject line, this different one was just something different. So, hey, let's see what he's up to. Now, I another time with this client, uh, he had the thing where an email went out with a broken link. And um, the question was, well, do we send a correction? What do we do about this? And he said, don't worry about it. And well, what? He's like, well, I don't, I don't send corrections. All right. That's a different philosophy. <laughs> but uh, another thing happened that really brings us into relief. And this happened maybe about a year and a half ago. One of my other current clients was in a partnership with somebody to put on this one little virtual event. It ran for two days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my client side, uh, their, their part of the lifting was, is they would host the website that people use for registrations. And it was agreed with everybody on the team. And I'm going to make up this date because I can remember exactly what it was. It was agreed with everybody on the team that the website would be live on March 8th. And at that point, the official promotions would begin. Mm-hmm. Well, on March 4th, the partner sent out their own email to their own list that had that link in it that went to a domain that hadn't even been hosted yet. Mm. And we said that we said to that partner, it's like, well, we said it was going to be up by the eighth. And she said, Oh yeah, yeah. I know about the eighth. And I'm completely confident that there's going to be a beautiful website out up there on the eighth, but I didn't want to wait. And if anybody contacts you asking, uh, where's the link, just send it to me and I'll close them over the phone. Huh. Now that is a level of chutzpah that uh, I know a lot of people just simply don't have, right. and that can be risky when it comes to reputations, depending on the market you're in. Yes, but I like to tell that story just to create a juxtaposition when we talk about briefing and debriefing and quality control and blame sessions. I'm giving you an example of somebody who knew full well that it was not time to send out that promotion did it anyway, knowing that the recipients would see a broken link and view that as an opportunity to close sales. Yeah. Hey, there's, sometimes there's, it's, there's, a, I... there's, there's a middle in here somewhere and every point has a counterpoint and every weight has a counterweight. Well, and I mean, so backing up to the, your story about the subject line and the lowercase D, right? Yeah. You know, what happens is in the past, Maybe he saw his his emails as successful, right? Yeah. So if his emails were already successful and he wasn't debriefing in terms of looking for, you know, maybe we maybe we should A B test, maybe we should try something new. Well, it's already successful. Why? Well, not until he did the mistake did he realize he could actually even be more successful, right? That he could that that the level of success that he was having was actually lower than what was possible, but he would have never known it if he had never made that mistake. To your point, and uh, and to close that thread, he actually, from that point forward, began getting more innovative with subject lines Yeah, because he saw the power in it that they didn't all have to be typos, but he could try different messages, different approaches, different tonalities, and just see what the results were. So he started with the subject lines without changing the body at all. And then once he got a feel for a range of subject lines that seemed to perform best, he yep. then started other tests against those. And then he started working into the body a little bit. Uh, should I put my pitch for my service first? Should I put two articles instead of one? Should I put the full article or just an excerpt with a link to my blog? And, and he just started going down all these different paths and finding different ways to connect with people that led to him developing his network in different ways over time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that all, I think that all ties in very nicely with questioning success. Right. Because uh-huh. you might you might have an email newsletter or whatever that, you know, by all measurements is successful. You're getting a 10, 15 percent open rate and you're getting a 20 percent click through rate. And it's like, well, that's great. But you know what? It's not as great if you could have had a 20 percent open rate and a 30 percent click through rate. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're actually at the top of our time here. And what I want to do here is just very briefly, um, I want to again encourage people to visit your website, which is lenherstein.com. And if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, L-E-N-H-E-R-S-T-E-I-N.com, you're going to find a lot of great information about Len's business, uh, some of the resources he offers. And I encourage everybody because I'm going to do it myself. When you go to that website, you're going to find the opportunity to get Len's book. It's called Be Vigilant, Strategies to Stop Complacency, Improve Performance, and Safeguard Success. Your business and relationships depend on it. You can find it on online retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books. 
and some other platforms as well. So I encourage everybody to do that. And is there any final thought that you have to share with us as we move forward and we continue to serve our markets from our intersection of our brilliance and our passion? Uh, you know what? First of all, thank you for the opportunity to be here to talk with you and to reach your audience. I appreciate it, Adam, and, I, and, I, and I've had a great time. I think, you know, I encourage everybody to also just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I love it when people hear uh, hear you know stuff on a podcast and then reach out to me directly on, on LinkedIn. I'm super open to that. So I, I definitely recommend that. And, you know, what I just recommend to people is just think about how you can be vigilant and in turn be aware. Just be more aware, be present, be intentional, and you know what? Be happy, be healthy, be safe, and be vigilant. Absolutely. Well, Len Hurstein, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor, and believe me, an education. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.